hid from him. C.S. Lewis, who, who wrote the Narnia books, he was somebody who had a similar experience. Listen to how he described his conversion to Christianity. You must picture me alone in my room night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. In 1929, he says, I gave in, I admitted that God was God, I knelt, I prayed, perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Famous words. Well, I think Jonah would uh, be able to relate really well to uh, that man, Thompson, and uh, that man, Lewis. He was a man who knew what it was like to be pursued by God. And this month in July, we're going to dive into Jonah. We're going to swim around in it, which seems like uh, the right kind of um, imagery. And I know that the kids know it really well, but um, Jonah is a book for uh, grown-ups too. And as I said, we're just going to look at the first few verses this morning uh, to set the scene. And there's three things I want us to see as we look at this passage together. The first is a summons, a summons passage says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And reading um, Jonah, it's a bit like watching a football match. Okay, it's a, it's a story in two halves. And in chapter one, Jonah hears God's call and he, he disobeys. In chapter three, in the second half, um, Jonah does the opposite. And in chapter 1, God gives Jonah a really big job to do. But as one of uh, our kids' books at home puts it, God says, go, and Jonah says, no. And if you look at the verses, though, I wonder if you can read kind of between the lines and see some of the things that are implied Um, The first is the truth about God. God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a a really big, great city. The Ninevites were not people in in God's family. And so here we learn something about the God of Israel. He's not just a, a local God. He's a global God. He cares about all kinds of people. He cares about Uh, the behavior of people who who aren't in his family. He is the creator. And uh, this is his city. This is his country. This is his continent. This is his world. And the God that we meet in the Bible is the God who knit us together, all of us in our mother's womb. The God who marked out all the days for us in our life. And that connects to something else that we uh, learn about in this summons. We learn a truth about human beings. We are accountable to God. God is not um, someone that uh, you and I are simply to think about or speculate about. We might have questions about God. But what God has to say to us is even more important than our questions about him. We are accountable to him. And Jonah is to call out against the Ninevites because they are evil. 
That's the word that is used in verse 2. Now today, I think there are, there are certain types of people, aren't there, that um, maybe on newspaper headlines, we will see certain people described as evil. But God is saying that the whole of this city has that mark on them. And if you like, their behavior, it was like a terrible smell. It was an offense against God because God is holy. And just in case we think that all this talk about evil is um, one of those kind of Old Testament-y ways of talking, well, listen to Jesus. And you might not like what you're about to hear from him. He's talking to his disciples about prayer. And then he says this, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you then, though you are evil. I think this is one of the ways in which the Bible's teaching about being human, it just cuts against uh, the view of our society. In our society today, there are certain people that we think of as being evil people and other people who are the right kind of people. And it's often suggested that we're progressing, isn't it? That with enough education, enough um, politics, human beings are just going to one day reach a, a great utopia, a great future. And this was the belief at the turn of the 20th century. Lots of advancements in technology and medicine, all that kind of thing promised this great golden future for the human race. But 14 years into that century, well, a really terrible event proved otherwise. Human beings do terrible things. You and I are capable of lots of good and true and beautiful things. But God's word tells us that if we scratch the surface a little bit, there's darkness inside us. And I think Jonah's refusal to go to Nineveh at the beginning of this book, it, in, a, in many ways, it proves it. He's commanded to do something. He's commanded to do that by God, not just anybody. And Jonah says, well... I'm just not going to do it. And I think this rebel streak is in all of us, isn't it? We never grow out of it. And no matter how good we look, no matter who we might fool, there is within each one of us a bias, a tendency towards sin. Nobody else is going to tell you what I just told you. But all of us have an attitude. If you walk out uh, the door today, nobody is going to tell you really that you um, are evil, that you have sin, that I have sin. God is honest with us. And we see his attitude, we see it played out in Jonah's actions. He, doesn't, he isn't just sort of hostile inside and, and kind of going along with what God wants him to do. No, he he actively disobeys. 
And in verse 3, we see it. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship. Not just any ship, one that's going in the, the opposite direction, uh, beyond the horizon. And then he gets his money out. And then he pays the fare. And then he decides, I'm going to get on this boat. And he does all of this to try to get away from the presence of the Lord, away from the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Now, uh, kids, this is what happened um, in Genesis 3, isn't it? After the fall, after they sinned, Adam and Eve, they hid from God. And that so often is you and me, that is us. I think deep within, we think that living before the face of God, that that is something that we should escape. That's something we think so often that we should run from. Now, um, in Edinburgh, not far from um, our old church, um, at the top of uh, Leith Walk, if you know Edinburgh, um, there's a place called the Omni Centre. And um, if you know that Omni means all, it's easy to understand the name. It is um, one of those places that has a cinema, loads of screens, it's got loads of restaurants, and it's even got a gym if you've um, had too much popcorn. And it's a something for everyone, all you can eat, all you can view, all you can lift, for all sorts of people kind of place. The Omni Center. And God is Omni present. What that means is that he is all present. He is fully present. God is not like the caffeine-fueled teacher who fails to see the pupils misbehaving as he's helping somebody else. Um, unlike human beings who, whose powers are limited to a particular place, God is fully present. God is fully active in all places. He is here, there, and everywhere. And in the words of St. Augustine, who, uh, he is confined by no frontiers and bound by no hindrances. And so when David, in the, in the psalm that we read earlier on, when David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? What is the answer? Nowhere. Wherever you and I go, God can see us. There's no escaping him. He is the God who is there. Just there. And that is quite disturbing, isn't it? Um, God knows all. God sees all. But it's also a great comfort. Because when you or I, we are wading through difficulty in our lives, we need to know that God is just as present as he seems on the happiest of days. And even in our rebellion, even in the rebellion of people that we love, God is always working to win his children back. And I think sometimes God will wait until a runaway is so far gone, so far away, 
that it almost seems impossible for there to be any sort of rescue. God sometimes does this. He sometimes allows us to go way off into the far country so that when he rescues us, well, only he gets the glory. And this process, this return, it begins in Jonah's life in a really surprising way. So we've seen the summons. The second thing I want us to see is a storm, a storm. Jonah's running from God. He's turned his back on God's call. And then in verse four, we see God's response. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And I think at the very beginning of that verse, it's the kind of thing we get really used to if we've been reading the Bible for a while. Um, we can be a bit like the person who's driving along, who passes off the turn uh, for home. But let's not speed past, let's slam on the brakes, let's reverse, and let's just stop and think about this for a minute. God saw Jonah running away from him, and he threw a storm at him. Um, I don't know if uh, any of you have ever been in a storm in a boat. But there is something about it that is terrifying. And in the Old Testament, uh, storms, the sea represented chaos, anti-God forces. But in Jonah 1, God has got all of that in his hands and he's using it for his ends. Now, I wonder what you make of that. And people in this chapter, they are in peril on the sea and it is all God's doing. So it's, it's a bit unorthodox, isn't it? Can we say that about God? It seems cavalier. It seems mysterious. Psalm 93, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. God rules over this storm. God speaks to it. And unlike Jonah, it obeys him. And God sends this storm to get his attention, to stop him in his tracks, to turn him around. And I think we can say that often God will use storms in our life to do the same. What does God do to, what does God need to do to get our attention? I think my natural tendency is to think that God is, is only at work when, when the seas of life are, are just nice and calm. Maybe you're the same. But often when we look back on our lives, isn't it the difficulties that we've faced? Isn't it those things that have been the times when we've trusted him the most? times we've grown the most, the times we've learned to cling to him. And Jonah 1, it introduces us to a God that we cannot tame, a God who acts as he chooses, a God who's out of our control, a God who can't be domesticated, and a God who doesn't always behave the way that we expect. 
Do you know these words? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That is the God of Jonah 1. And that is also the God of Mark chapter 4. The storm uh, of the Sea of Galilee is, is a really stunning painting by the great Dutch artist Rembrandt. It was finished in 1633, and it has been called the greatest painting you will never see, because in 1990, it was um, stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, and it's never been found. And in that painting that uh, depicts the the scene of Jesus um, in the boat with his disciples in Mark chapter 4. There, there are 14 men. There's Jesus and the 12 disciples. That's 13. But there's one more. And in the painting, he is looking right out at the viewer. And uh, the art critics, um, they tell us that it's Rembrandt himself. It's really powerful, isn't it? It's an illustration of the Christian life. We face many storms. We don't live long before we do. Maybe it's a medical storm. Maybe it's a financial storm. Maybe it's some kind of spiritual storm. But what we need to remember when we face these things, when we pass through them as we will, is that we have someone with us who rules over them, someone whose stability cannot be touched by the storms of life. Jesus, the, the help of the helpless, he is strong enough to keep hold of us in a storm. He is strong enough to, to bring us home through a storm. And today, God calls us to trust that promise. So we've seen a summons, we've seen a storm. The last thing I want us to see this morning is a sleeper, a sleeper. Jonah was running from God. Jonah was defiant. But look at what he's doing in verse 5. He has gone down into the belly of the, the ship. And maybe he's in some kind of hammock or something, I don't know but he's asleep. And I think this is quite surprising. We might have expected Jonah to be tossing, to be turning, to be wrestling with his conscience, maybe at least to be having some kind of nightmare. But no, he is sound asleep in the middle of a storm that is all of his own making. You know, sleep is fascinating. One of the things that reminds us of is our frailty as uh, human beings, as creatures. And there's a reason why sleep deprivation is such an effective means of torture. Kids, you need to remember that. Um, sleep can be a refuge. And um, sometimes life feels so impossible that just going to sleep is such a relief. Just going to sleep and not having to think for a couple of hours. But I think Jonah's sleep is different. I think it is, maybe this is a bit of a funny phrase, I think it is defiant sleep. 
See, sleep is a kind of passive act, isn't it? Maybe that sounds a strange way of putting it, defiant sleep. I think Jonah's sleep here, I think it teaches us that it is possible to be running away from God and feel perfectly at peace. People often say this kind of thing, don't they? I've got such peace about X. Even when they know that X is totally contradictory to God's word, their sense of peace, very subjective thing, for them it trumps what God has said. Never be surprised if that kind of thinking rises to the surface in us or in someone you know. I think Jonah's sleep, it shows us something of the deception of our own hearts. It was defiant. He probably was physically exhausted. But it was also dangerous. See, look what's happening in verse 5. And Jonah is in a boat that is going down and he is asleep. And the waves are crashing. The sailors are calling out. And they're chucking luggage out of the boat. And Jonah, well, he's just turned over and he's lost in sleep. But the God he knew, the God that we know, is the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He knows our going out. He knows our lying down. And he is the God who is able to wake us up. And so this morning, are you running from God today? Or maybe to put that question a different way, are you praying for somebody who is running from God? Maybe someone really close to you. Maybe they have been running from God. Maybe you've been running from God for a long time. Maybe like C.S. Lewis, you're terrified of, of giving in. Maybe you've drifted from him. Maybe you're lost this morning in, in a big sea of sin. Maybe you're staying away from God because you feel a sense of shame. Or maybe a nice, easy current is just causing you or I to forget God. Well, today is the day for all of us to come back to him. Today is the day to cry, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And those are words that Jesus will never ignore. Because unlike Jonah, Jesus is a true prophet. Unlike Jonah, Jesus heard God's call. He obeyed his voice. And in the garden, he said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. If you're afraid of coming back to Jesus this morning, then remember this. He didn't look at us and run away from us. No, he ran right to us. He ran, he went straight to the cross. And so this morning, maybe you can hear above the waves 
Maybe you can hear above the sailors calling out. Maybe you can hear the one who came to seek and save the lost, the one who came for you, the one who came for me, the one who came to rescue, the one who's with us in the storm, and the one who has promised to never, ever let us go. Well, let's pray together. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Father, we praise you for your wonderful love that pursues us even as we run from you. We thank you that salvation comes from you, our Lord. And so this morning we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to seek and save the lost. Thank you that he is able to find us wherever we are. And so we prayed, help us to trust him and listen to him and love him. Thank you that he loves us. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to